Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. We have a big show for you tonight that we are very excited about. As you know, this is the show that respects your intelligence. We honor you as a citizen, and we work every day to bring you the stories that the mainstream media so often ignores, along with the perspectives that big tech and others so often seek to silence. Well, it has already been a big news week. There's a lot happening as the Biden administration gets off the ground and everyone is preparing for the Trump impeachment trial. Well, today, President Trump and his team offered a 14-page response to the accusations against him. Here to break that down for us is the news editor at justthenews.com, Joe Weber. Joe, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. We know this is one of the big stories at justthenews.com. It's about the Trump team's response, which we have available for everybody online. But please break us break it down for us, uh, Joe. What's what's inside of that 14 page response? Uh, Well, it's a pretty lean um, response, 14 pages compared to the Democrats brief, which is about 70. Basically says that it's unconstitutional to do that. He's no longer president. Uh, so the Constitution doesn't allow for him to be uh, tr- tried or, in- or impeached, uh, tried in-, in a Senate trial. It's just that simple. It says goes on to say that what he said in that uh, rally before this January 6th uh, siege at the U.S. Capitol building didn't. And they actually mean include an audio in their submission to the court. You hear him says, you can go down there and fight like hell. But he didn't directly say, you know, I want you to go down to the Capitol and bust in there and try to stop this uh, certification of the uh, of the votes, of the state electoral college votes. It's very awesome. And, and Joe, break down for us also, if you would, please. We understand that President Trump is starting to uh, pull together his legal team. Do we understand that this was actually put out by uh, some of the head folks on the on the Trump legal team, which is expected to offer his defense at the at the impeachment? Yes, that's true. He's hired two new lawyers, and one of them is an expert. He's been done a lot of immigration law, a lot of trial law, uh, federal on the federal level, represented victims of terrorism. Another Pennsylvania uh, district attorney who's very uh, fluent in this too. So he's got a solid team. Uh, you know, contrary to what people have said about you know other uh, lawyers on his team jumping ship, these guys were have been here for a while. They were already working on this. So. Um, that is really sort of um, not a complete accurate truth that you're hearing in some of the media gathering uh, organizations. Yeah. Excellent. And Joe, also some some big news. Amazon has been in the news a lot recently, particularly for its decision to basically de-platform Parler to essentially take away Parler's ability to operate. Amazon was getting a lot of heat for that. And we understand now that Jeff Bezos is stepping down as CEO of Amazon. What do we know? Yeah, nobody really saw this coming. Uh, Amazon announced this late breaking news this, this afternoon, late 
uh, afternoon, early evening, that he was going to step down at some point in time this year and become a chairman. Now, you know, widespread speculation as to what that means. Uh, there's been some speculation that, you know, he's interested in buying a TV news network, maybe K uh, maybe CNN. Um, maybe he wants to run for president. You know, wouldn't that be something? Trump versus uh, Bezos in 2024, 20, 26? <laughs> that 24. would certainly, certainly be, be interesting. Now, Let's also break down some of the, the biggest stories at justthenews.com. And as we often do, we want to remind our viewers, Joe, that you and all of your reporters, you always have a dig-in section in all of your articles so that the viewers can actually dig in themselves and they can see the original sources that you use for your reporting. One of the biggest stories right now that's trending is that Mitch McConnell, Senate Majority Leader, issues a statement backing Liz Cheney and another one slamming Marjorie Taylor Greene. What do we know there? Well, he basically said that, you know, Liz Cheney can do, uh, you know, whatever she feels it's in her heart. And I think that he basically, um, Mitch McConnell suggested that the things that Marjorie Taylor uh, Greene has said were quote unquote loony. Um, so he has been quiet. Uh, I think that he he really kind of stayed under the radar about his opinions about these types of political things with inner party fighting. But since Trump has left, uh, he appears to become more vocal. He's he's behind the Senate impeachment trial. I think he really wants to get this out because he knows that they don't have the votes to impeach him to get to get it over. Um, but it's interesting to have people are sticking their fingers in the political wind here and trying to figure out, you know, is this going to be the party of Trump or won't it? And, you know, what is their position on that? You take a look at you know, Rob Portman, who kind of, you know, very good uh, senator out of Ohio who recently announced his retirement, excuse me. But, you know, recently he's come out and says he was one of the 10 people that went to um, mm. the White House to see Biden just yesterday uh, among that group that's going to propose an alternative bill. And uh, he's had some things to say about Marjorie Taylor Greene that, you know, that he was concerned about it, too. So here's a guy. Well, he's on his way out, so he doesn't have to look at reelection. But you're seeing a lot of people really come out and be far more vocal than they were, what, maybe two weeks ago. Yeah, and Joe, uh, I want to turn now to the number one story trending right now at justthenews.com is entitled Bait and Switch, that Joe Biden went down to Georgia. He promised voters $2,000 in COVID relief, and now, just a couple of weeks later, he's offering them 1400 bucks. What do we know? Yeah, you know how it is on the campaign trail. The last couple of weeks, I guess you promised the world, right? And then you got to deliver on it. But you know, $2,000 uh, was a stretch to begin with. I know that, like, you know, everybody's eyes went wide open when they saw that number. And, mm -hmm. you know, everybody in Washington essentially saying, oh, man, you know, you're really going to have a hard time making that promise come true. That's just an uh, extraordinary amount of money, a lot of money. I mean, everybody, there's a lot of people in this country who are hurting, but it's just really difficult to uh, conceptualize how he thought that, uh, Senate Republicans would go for that when when they were basically at about 1,000 uh, when they were negotiating with Nancy Pelosi before uh, President Trump left office. So mm -hmm. that would be a hard yeah, sell to be num impressed. Number two story uh, trending uh, right now at, at, at justthenews.com actually has to do with the throwback from the Obama era. We've seen a lot of Joe Biden's appointees have come out from his time when he was vice president under President Obama, including, it sounds like they're looking at Rahm Emanuel, uh, Obama's former chief of staff for a high-profile position. Yeah, definitely. He is, well, I guess, one of the quintessential, you know, sort of a Democratic politicians, a Democratic insider. He was uh, just a House member. He was an up-and-coming House member 
uh, when President Obama picked him out of the out of the House in 2009 to be his chief of staff. He stayed a couple years and then he went on to be the Chicago mayor, which is a difficult job. There's just a lot of things going on there, a lot of crime. That's more. It's just like being the mayor of New York. It's harder to come out of that good than it is, uh, you know, to come out of it uh, bad. And but he's back, uh, just like a lot of people you have seen in the administration. Mm. Uh, Peter Strzok's wife. Remember him? He's the FBI agent who was involved in interviewing Mike Flynn at the White House. Uh, his wife has got a job. You look at Neera Tanden, who was for the American Center for Progress, which is basically, you know, started by John Podesta. It was been what we call in Washington. Uh, was a Clinton uh, shadow government for what, you know, 10 years mm -hmm. until Hillary uh, ran. Uh, so, you know, they're bringing back the, you know, they want to use a cliche, but they really, you know, getting the band back together. You know, Lincoln, that he worked in the administration with, with him as well. Yeah. And Joe, we've got a lot of law enforcement supporters among our viewers, a lot of law enforcement families. Uh, another big story trending at, at justthenews.com. So the FBI has identified uh, two agents who, who gave their lives this morning. Uh, please give us the, uh, the details there. Yeah, sad story. Um, they were serving uh, a, a warrant down in uh, Sunrise, Florida, which is sort of like suburban Fort Lauderdale. And uh, one of the people who was the gunman opened fire, shot five of them at least, um, two killed, three, three seriously injured, um, domestic abuse. Um, police still don't know exactly what went on there, but um, it's it's a sad story. And um, the two people, the agents who were killed, um, everyone has said that you know they they were outstanding agents and they were you know they fell in the line of duty um, doing their job. There's um, nothing more they could have done to prevent the situation than what what happened this morning, at about 6:10 a.m. Excellent. Well, we'll certainly uh, continue to follow that story and our, our thoughts and prayers with uh, those officers and their, and their families. Um, last, Joe, I want to turn to another big story. Uh, you, the team, Daniel Payne, everybody there at Just the News has done a, a really important job following all of the developments related to coronavirus. We have a report out now that amid the reported deaths following COVID-19 vaccinations that experts are allaying fears and discouraging alarm. Break that down for, for our viewers, if you would, please. Well, I think what they're trying to do in large part is to say that, you know, the virus, that the, the vaccine is not dangerous and that somehow that's sort of permeated uh, the culture here. Lately, you see it spread all across the spectrum. Nurses don't want it. You know, some teachers don't want it. Now we're hearing that the elderly don't want it. And um, once you get into that sort of culture, uh, that becomes very, very difficult to solve this pandemic. And I think that, um, you know, the, the leaders of this country have done a pretty good job of getting out in front of the cameras and taking these vaccines in an effort to try to show that, reach out to the African-American community, which has concerns. Decades past, uh, they you know, were part of research that uh, didn't tell them exactly what it was they were taking uh, in terms of medicine or trial medicine. Uh, so that has made them leery. But, you know, continue to try to do this. We need to try to get these vaccines and as many people as possible, as soon as possible, to try to end the pandemic. Excellent. Well, Joe, as ever, we appreciate you joining us and joining our viewers to help to break down some of the biggest stories. And again, folks, you can see Joe's stories and the team stories out at justthenews.com. We'll stay with us tonight because coming up next, we've got Josh Hammer, the opinion editor at Newsweek, who's got a powerful op-ed out. Amanda Head is going to be here to break down the latest on the Gavin Newsom recall effort. We'll be back in just a minute.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the show that respects your intelligence, and we work every day to bring you the perspectives and the insights that sometimes big tech seeks to silence. Well, we're joined now by Josh Hammer. He's the Newsweek opinion editor. He is a syndicated columnist. He is a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, and he has a powerful op-ed just out. It says, American elites are seeking to rig the game. Josh, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you, Governor. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Josh, one of the things that you say in the op-ed, you start right off, you say that the American ruling class has flexed its muscles like never before. Let's talk a little bit about that. From your perspective, who are the American ruling class and how are they flexing their muscles? So, you know, the term ruling class is something I I, I borrowed from uh, Angelo Cotavia, actually, who's uh, mm-hmm. he was born in Italy. He was a longtime professor at Boston University, affiliated with the Claremont Institute. Angelo has written for years, possibly decades, about how America has become increasingly divided, not necessarily even between left and right, not necessarily mm-hmm. between, you know, uh, geography even. Um, uh, in fact, actually, Michael Lynn, the prolific essayist, had a great recent essay, a tablet, talking about how this ruling class that we speak of is actually not geographically confined. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. just a here or there kind of thing. It's a national ruling class. So, so when folks like Angelo, Michael Lynn, and myself talk about it, what we're really referring to is kind of this nation, nationwide elite social club, basically, whose membership is carefully circumscribed, circumscribed by whom you vote for, what educational degrees you have, what, if you have mm-hmm. the, the requisite Ivy League credentials, uh, you know, if you, maybe if you went to a, a top, top, top tier elite state school. But most importantly, Governor, you have to have the correct beliefs. That is the most important thing to be part yeah. of the ruling class. No one who has wrong think beliefs, who has any kind of beliefs that are contrary to the to the woke, to the lowercase o orthodoxy that this nation has increasingly come to believe in, that makes you outside the ruling class. And that is kind of the divide that we're going to see in the next four years, is whether you are a loyalist of the regime and of the ruling class or whether you are an enemy of the ruling class. Yeah, and Josh, one of the things that, that you uh, mentioned that a lot of our viewers comment on so often is that when they look at politics, they often don't see it any longer, even as a conflict between Democrats and Republicans, so much as they often feel like it is a conflict between the establishment, the swamp, some will say, between elites and, uh, and the American people. Uh, in the op-ed, one of the things that you talk about is how big tech has kind of moved in. And you talked about how they came into kneecap uh, parlor. Break that down for, for our viewers, if you would. So, you know, it's funny. I, I mean, look, I believe in capitalism, okay? I, mm-hmm. I believe in the free market system. I, I always have. I'm sure your listeners do as well. The, the problem is that what we have in America in the year 2021 is not kind of an idealistic, laissez-faire capitalist system like you read in an economics textbook. The system increasingly actually is very similar to uh, Deng, what Deng Xiaoping, who replaced Mao Zedong as kind of the de facto head of the Chinese Communist Party in the 1980s, what he kind of referred to as capitalism with Chinese characteristics. And what I mean by that is that you have this huge, bulky, massive, ideologically monolithic regime 
that takes these quote unquote private sector companies and effectively uses them as pawns. It uses them as appendages to accomplish what the actual government is not able to accomplish. Now, every government, every country is a little different, but in America, what that usually means is that the government cannot accomplish it because we have this thing called the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. So here, what what, what big tech is, okay, and big tech is increasingly a one-party, it's a one-party industry. It is a Democratic Party donating industry. Back in the 90s when tech was first starting, they had some more Republican donors. Now it, that is no longer the case. Zuckerberg, Dorsey, all these people are all Democratic Party shills. And what you have is the government effectively sicking big tech mm-hmm. onto the CISRI to accomplish what it cannot do directly. Because the government, because right. the First Amendment cannot directly censor you. But at least big tech thinks that because of Section 230, which of course has been the news so much over the past couple of years, it mm-hmm. thinks that it can kind of take these quote unquote private companies to accomplish pro- quote unquote privately what it cannot do directly. So that's really what we're seeing here is the ruling class inside and outside the government they are acting in unison as one gigantic blob, if you will. And the target, of course, is, is our folks like me and you, Governor, folks yeah. like us who just want to live our normal lives. You know, we want to go to church, synagogue. We want to just live our normal lives without being forced to bow at the altar of wokeness. Right. And Josh, you know, you also talk in the op-ed, I think very powerfully, about the election and how people's contentions about the election, whether there was fraud, what, you know, how the election was conducted. And you talk about the difference between the way that claims made by the Democrats in 2016 were treated compared to claims that were made by conservatives in 2020. If you would break that down, down as well. Sure. So, you know, the double standard here is just off the charts. And it's kind of this double standard that we increasingly see in basically every facet of life that kind of got me to write this op-ed in the first place. But as far as election results in particular are concerned, you know, every single time a Republican has won the White House since the year 2000 and what that, you know, meaning Mm -hmm. George W. Bush in 2000, 2004, and of course, Donald Trump in 2016, all three of those times, some motley crew of Democratic Congress, pers- Congress, you know, congressmen and senators rose to the floor to object to at least a portion of the results. You know, Barbara right. Boxer, the former senator from California, famously did this in 2004 with respect to George W. Bush winning Ohio, which was the, the, the decisive state that year. And, you know, back at that time, those objections were all kind of shot down, but no one really thought twice about it. They thought they were just kind of mm. exercising what is clearly a tool afforded to them under our Constitution. Of course, when Republicans do it in an election unlike any other, where mail-in balloting has proliferated, where it's the highest turnout ever, where all these states are changing their election law midstream. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court is engaging in transparently lawless behavior, and the U.S. Supreme Court is willfully turning a blind eye to it. Amidst all of this once-a-lifetime nonsense, some, some Republicans have you know, the gall to go up and raise similar concerns that their Democratic predecessors have. And now they're insurrectionists, seditionists, they're enemies of the regime. They should be expelled, punished. This is this is banana republic stuff, Governor. I mean, this is just increasingly yeah. clear that our side just does not play by the same rules. We are held to a totally different standard in every phase of life. Yeah, and I think, you know, a number of our viewers uh, have pointed out that, and you, you make mention of the Russia collusion hoax in your op-ed, which went on for years and months after the election. You actually had Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi saying that the 2016 election was hijacked months afterwards, and all based on what we now know to be a completely false narrative 
uh, regarding that, that Russia collusion hoax. Let's turn for a minute, Josh, and, and talk about one of the things uh, we've been talking about with, with our viewers a lot is also what's been happening in the stock market. Break down your analysis of what's been happening with the folks who are on Reddit, with GameStop, with Silver, et cetera. So it seems like yet another manifestation of the same phenomenon that we were just discussing, right? Where, you know, half of society plays by one set of rules, the other half plays by an entirely different set of rules. And, you know, look, I, I, I'm not an investor by background, but I, you know, I do, I, I follow the markets. I have a, a personal account that I trade in every so often. I was an economics major way back in the day at our, at our mutual alma mater, Duke. And, you know, I, I generally consider myself somewhat financial literate. So I, I, I know that... Right short selling is is not necessarily the bane of of all evil i right. mean uh, it, it's it, it's not the end of the world for hedge funds to do what the name of their entire industry implies hedge their bets mm -hmm. the problem is that when the brokerages come in when robin hood comes in the following day after this tremendous gamestop spike and if you read the reports carefully and i was following on twitter very carefully that day there are blue check financial industry reporters who are reporting that Robinhood clients actually had their GameStop shares forcibly sold. They did not execute those sell trades. They were forcibly sold in some incredibly paternalistic attempt, apparently, to manipulate markets. And, you know, look, the more cynical among us might say, what's actually going on here, you know? Um, mm -hmm. Janet Yellen, the, the new Treasury Secretary back um, during the Trump administration, if I'm not mistaken, she was collecting multi-hundred thousand dollar speaking fees for Citadel, which is a massive investment fund closely tied to Robinhood, what they did as a brokerage. It, look, you know, uh, Peter Hawley uh, from your state, Missouri, had a wonderful piece uh, at, at First Things Magazine yesterday, basically just saying that the system loses its integrity. And rightly mm -hmm. or wrongly, the participants in it don't feel like they are given a shot. And we're talking about the financial system, the the integrity of the financial system, which is something that obviously has taken a beating as far as reputation in the past with the 2008 bailouts and all of that. Um, it's just it, it's just so increasingly clear, I think, to many Americans that these sets of rules in every facet of life, whether it's um, you know whether it's church, whether it's synagogue, whether uh, it's the stock market, whether it's university, whether it's anything, we just are held to an entirely different set of rules, and it's really sad to see the stock market go down this road like so many other institutions have already gone. Yeah, Josh, we only have about about fifty seconds left, uh, but I want you quickly just to put on your your historical hat. One of the things I enjoy about your columns is that they are always you know, chock full of real details, historically informed. You're just mentioning, you know, Deng Xiaoping, 1979, what he wanted to do in China. When we look back at American history, we have had moments like this before. You think of the Cross of Gold speech in 1896, Teddy Roosevelt becoming president, you know, in, in, uh, in 1901, that what was happening then was you had a big movement, a populist movement in both parties. From your standpoint, again, just 30 seconds or so, where are we at now in American history? Are we seeing a similar movement? I think we are. I mean, we are in the midst I th of what seems to me, and like many others that I speak with on a daily basis, it seems to me like we really are currently in the throes of a once-a-lifetime political realignment. I think the Democrats will only increasingly become the party of the elite, the credentialed, the PhDs, you know, uh, the suburban elites, and the Republicans are going to have to realize that their voters are working class. Now, there's going to be a chasm Absolutely. between the donor class Yes.
who are going to come together. Well, folks, again, that is Josh Hammer. Check out his columns online. He's a syndicated columnist as well as a research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation. Stay right with us. We're going to be back with Amanda Head. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Reitens. Well, as promised, we're now bringing in Amanda Head from California. She is a Real America's Voice contributor. You've seen her many times on this show. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. I know it's interesting not being either in studio with you or from our D.C. Bureau. Yeah, but hey, most importantly, though, we've got you out in California and there's big news happening out in California. Most importantly, a really strong recall effort to ask Gavin Newsom to be recalled as the governor of California. What's the latest? Indeed, yes. We've been very busy over here in California. This past weekend, they passed the 1.3 million signature mark of the 1.5 mm-hmm. million required. Uh, I am hearing from the effort that they are actually aiming for 1.8 million because they're, they want to get a little past that threshold to pad in room for signatures that the state of California will likely deal as illegitimate or illegal or invalid. So they're trying to build in that buffer. Our Secretary of State, who was just sworn in actually on Friday, Shirley Weber, she was the successor to Alex Padilla, but Alex Padilla, in conjunction with Weber, uh, deemed that 84% of the signatures they've collected thus far are valid. So you can see why they want to have that little pillow mm-hmm. of insulation so that they can build up to the number required. Now, what happens once they secure all of those signatures required, the measure will go on the ballot this fall. And that's when everybody can throw their hat in the ring. There are a couple folks, the mayor of San Diego, as well as John Cox, who ran for governor in 2018, unfortunately lost to Gavin Newsom by about 24 points. But he's throwing his hat in the ring as well. Also, a new strange tidbit of information, Uh, commentator, conservative commentator Mike Cernovich is considering throwing his hat in the Mm. ring, too. So it's kind of a free-for-all here. Maybe I'll run for governor. Well, we'd, we'd love to see that at Real America's Voice. So, But Amanda, break down, if you would, for our viewers outside of California, how the recall effort works in California. So is there first an, ele- first a, uh, an election to actually recall Gavin Newsom, and then there'd be an election uh, to have uh, his or her successor uh, in place? So the signatures required is actually what serves as the decision to recall. So uh, on the ballot in November is when people will have the choice of whether they want to keep Gavin Newsom. Here's hoping that people in California uh, make the right decision this time around. This, by the way, Eric, is our third time at recalling a governor in as many decades, actually fewer decades. So it seems that Californians are not great at making initial decisions and they go back. Mm. They have a lot of buyer's remorse here in California. Um, so that, again, will go on the ballot in the fall. And at that point, who knows? Why? Maybe we'll have another governor. But what's interesting, and we brought this up on America's Voice Live on this network, I think, yesterday, they are so stringent 
about these signatures. You know, they want to make sure that everybody's name matches the voter records, matches the address, make sure that it's a residential address and not a P.O. box, make sure these people are still alive, make, make sure these people actually live here, and this isn't a secondary address or a secondary home for them. Why couldn't we do that in all 50 states for elections? Yeah, it is it is an amazing an amazing double standard a lot of people are saying when they look at how this is being conducted as compared to how the actual election in 2020 was conducted. And Amanda, what's your sense? You and I have talked before about Californians anger around Gavin Newsom's approach to coronavirus, especially what they perceive to be his irrational approach. Uh, most recently, he said that he was going to, you know, ease restrictions, and yet that looked to many people like it was a political decision rather than a decision rooted in science, even based on his own arguments. What are you hearing from folks there in terms of how Newsom's coronavirus response is leading other people to join this effort to recall him? Yeah, so let's rewind a little bit to when Gavin Newsom actually ran for governor. A lot of us mm. who did not support him, we cautioned our fellow Californians that San Francisco would serve as a microcosm. You know, our founding fathers set up our states as laboratories of democracy. You would think that cities where mayors run for governorship, that that would serve as a laboratory of democracy. So we tried to warn people. We said, look at look at San Francisco as a city. Look at the crime. Look at the homelessness and, and see if you want that propagated throughout California. So after Gavin Newsom was elected, a lot of people kind of felt like, OK, maybe we made the wrong decision. We should have thought about this before the election. So the recall Gavin Newsom effort actually started before coronavirus. You know, obviously it didn't have near as much momentum behind it. But then COVID happened. And and the interesting mm. thing is that, you know, California has had the harshest strict downs this entire time. And then I talked about this last week. When Gavin Newsom decided miraculously a few weeks ago to just open back up, we had more hospitalizations. We had like 4,500 more new hospitalizations in LA County alone than the day that he decided to shut down California. So I think that, you know, that this isn't necessarily a partisan issue because a lot of people who even voted for him mm -hmm. in 2018 are thinking to themselves, okay, they say to trust the science, they say they're using the science, but it doesn't seem to line up with the measures they've taken. And furthermore, with regards to the science in L.A. County, we had a L.A. County Board of Supervisors official who voted to lock down L.A. County's outdoor dining, to lock, you know, shut down restaurants yeah. altogether with the exception of takeout and delivery. Hours later, she was dining outdoors at a Santa Monica restaurant. L.A. County Board of Supervisors in order to justify that decision to shut down restaurants said that they were looking at studies well the only study that they produced that they used as science for the basis of their decision was a study that talked about covid cases in restaurants indoors it didn't even take into account any type of transmission rate in outdoor dining so for a lot of people even on the left side of the aisle they look at this especially small business owners people whose whose small business barely yeah. made it through the first harshest lockdown you know they purchased the plexiglass the ppe the outdoor heaters the outdoor tables and chairs they they spent money they didn't have to try to keep their business alive and to keep their employees employed and in work and then they got shut down again last fall 
And and that was the nail in the coffin for a lot of these people. And people are angry, Eric. I'm not going to lie. I mean, this yeah. looks like it's something yeah. that's political, but it is. there is a lot of emotion driven behind this. And it's not any type of superficial, unfounded emotion. It is people whose lives have been shut down. A lot of them are immigrants. Um, a lot of these people came to America, whether legal or illegal, doesn't matter with, within the scope of this conversation, but they came here to achieve their American dream. They opened a restaurant, they opened a corner market, they opened a you know, a, a little grocery store, or a, a gas station or something. And these are people who came here and their American dream is becoming an American nightmare. And I just feel for these people because their lives have been destroyed with with all of these un, you know, seemingly irrational decisions that Gavin Newsom and folks like Mayor Eric Garcetti here in L.A. have made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Amanda, I think, you know, what we're hearing from a lot of people is, as you said, it is well-founded anger. I mean, these people's constitutional freedoms were taken away. Their ability to go to church and worship was impacted. And in many cases, as you pointed out, it's led not only to unemployment, but to the loss of family-owned small businesses some of which were had an entire families working in them. So you have the irrationality. You have the tremendous hypocrisy. You pointed out one example. And, of course, Gavin Newsom himself was famously out dining, not following his own rules. And then the other thing that I think has uh, really gotten a lot of people's attention is that when you compare California's extraordinarily strict lockdowns to a state like Florida, and Florida has an elderly population has been open and has better results than California. So a lot of people are just saying this absolutely doesn't make any sense. And at the end of the day, you're hurting a lot of people. What's, it's obviously still early days. It sounds like they've made a lot of progress in collecting signatures. You're in touch with a lot of folks on the ground in California. What's your assessment at this point of how likely this recall effort is going to be to be successful to actually recall Governor Newsom? I will put money on it right now that it is going to happen. You know, Californians, unfortunately, this is in our wheelhouse. We've gotten really good at this. Mm -hmm. So if there are other states who want, who feel like they made bad decisions, give us a call. We'll give you tips on how to make this happen. I do, Eric, I do think it's going to happen. And, you know, you brought up the Gavin Newsom French laundry situation. For people who mm -hmm. don't know, Gavin Newsom, his publicist tried to come out and say that they weren't breaking the rules. As you can see there, that is an enclosed room. It does have sliding glass doors. But because the group was so ruckus and loud, uh, they had to shut those doors. So they were enclosed. And guess who else was at dinner? California Medical Board members. How is that for hypocrisy? Well, it just strikes people as being so hypocritical. You had California Medical Board members and, as you and I have talked about before, also lobbyists. So, you know, people who've lost their own small businesses, their own neighborhood restaurants are watching politicians, lobbyists and insiders who have imposed these decisions, destroyed other people's small businesses and not even following their own rules. Amanda, before we go, remind all of our viewers where they can find you on social media. Sure. You can find me on Twitter at Amanda Head. Or The Hollywood Conservative, you can pretty much find me anywhere. The TheHollywoodConservative.us is my website. And, of course, I'm here. I, I hang out here on Real America's Voice. Absolutely. And we enjoy hanging out with you at Real America's Voice. Thank you so much for bringing us this analysis of what is happening in California. 
Well, folks, coming up after this fantastic interview earlier today on Real America's Voice with Dinesh D'Souza covering a lot only some of the you know, key topics of the day, but also some fun and interesting insights from David Brody. Stay right with us. We'll be back in a minute. Well, welcome back to Actionable Intelligence. I'm Eric Greitens. This is the show that respects your intelligence, and we work to bring you the stories and the perspectives that big tech so often seeks to silence. Well, earlier today, David Brody on the water cooler. You've seen him before on this show. He's always insightful, always a lot of fun. He sat down with Dinesh D'Souza. Fantastic interview. Take a listen. Dinesh D'Souza, great to see you again. Really appreciate you being here on the water cooler. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Uh, Dinesh, uh, Democrats are out, as you might imagine, with the scathing impeachment uh, trial strategy saying that Donald Trump basically loaded up like a loaded cannon at the U.S. Capitol in terms of all of the House members there. What do you make of some of this news today? Well, uh, other than the fact that there was no incitement and no genuine insurrection, I guess they have a point. Uh, The (laughs) thing about um, about incitement, um, you know, I was just reading actually uh, Julius Caesar where Mark Anthony does incitement. He incites the crowd to sort of uh, seditious action but he plans it. That's the first step. The second thing is there's incitement language in his speech, the famous Mark Anthony oration. And third, after the crowd goes wild, he celebrates. He goes, yeah, look at them. They're doing my they're doing their mischief. So with Trump, you have none of these elements, no planning. He didn't actually have any words of incitement. He never said, go take the Capitol. It was political boilerplate language. And finally, there's no sense that he was excited about what happened and felt it was a triumphant result of what he did. In fact, he goes out there and starts telling people to go home. Yeah, Dinesh, what's the end game here for Democrats? I mean, look, they, they thought at one point maybe they could get 67 votes. They're not going to get 67 Republicans. So, so what's, what's the point of it? It feels so futile, not to mention unconstitutional. I think it is all of those things, uh, but I think it shows two things. One is that the, the level of vengeance, it's a little bit like the guy who sort of you know, uh, wants to stomp on somebody's grave. It's uh, that they can't stop themselves. Their their level of anger is so high. The second thing is they're hoping in some way to keep Trump off the 2024 ticket. Now, it's really interesting that they're so scared of that because that means that they think he has a prospect of winning, even though he'll be <laughs> four years older. One might think he wouldn't want to do it, but nevertheless, the Democrats think he might want to do it. Let's launch a preemptive strike against that possibility. Yeah. Dinesh, let me uh, switch gears a little bit to talk about January 6th to a degree as it relates to the Capitol Hill security and what's going on. So let me get this straight. Democrats are not big into fences unless they're protecting themselves up there at the Capitol. Well, this is so telling, isn't it? I mean, the images on the one hand of them suspending the border wall around the country's border. Meanwhile, massive walls and fences and armed security going up around the Capitol and all over D.C. So what does that tell you? First, that the political class is more interested in protecting themselves than they are in protecting the American people. And the second thing is that they see a bigger danger coming from their fellow Americans, including, by the way, Republicans in Congress. I mean, imagine AOC AOC saying things like, oh, Ted Cruz wants to murder me. I'm in fear for my life. So these guys actually fear the American people far more than they fear MS-13 gang members and drug smugglers coming and pouring across the border. It gives you a real sense of where their priorities lie. 
Dinesh, speaking about the border, uh, Joe Biden uh, is set to uh, introduce immigration executive orders. Here we go again. The pen is uh, hot and heavy, if you will. Uh, and, and that's going to happen again. Already he stopped construction at the border wall. We understand he's going to, in essence, review, whatever that means, review uh, the Remain in Mexico uh, policy that the Trump administration put in place. What, what do you make of what uh, Joe Biden is doing on the immigration front? Well, I think it's part of a, um, a scheme by Democrats on all fronts to try to um, ensure that they don't really have to contest another election. Uh, the Democrats don't really care about um, the immigrants themselves. A very good test of this is, let's just do a thought experiment and imagine that 90% of the new coming immigrants would automatically vote Republican. The, they would put the wall up so quickly that uh, you wouldn't even be able to blink. Uh, and it would be a giant wall, bigger than the one in, in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, so their interest in the immigrants is as potential dependents, potential unemployed, potential people that can be recruited into their kind of victimology camp. Uh, and uh, so this is one way to go about it. And I think that explains their fanaticism on this on this issue. And then, therefore, that's one way. But there are other ways, which is this big amnesty bill that Joe Biden wants to do. I mean, I, I can't imagine that's going to be uh, passed with any sort of Republican support. I wonder somehow, can they somehow get immigration done on budget reconciliation? They, they can find a lot of creative ways to get things done. I don't think they're going to get this one done. And the reason for it is there's actually fairly strong entrenched Democratic opposition to it. Yeah. Uh, in other words, there's no unanimity in, on immigration in either party. The lines kind of run in between the parties, uh, not just between the parties, but inside the parties themselves. And so I think the bottom line of it is, particularly with the very close razor thin margin in the House and really almost no margin in the Senate, uh, this is not something that's going to be easy to do at all, particularly if you make it sort of. Now, it's one thing if you did modest immigration, things like let's let in some skilled people, you know, uh, and uh, on a modification of the H-1B, that, that, that kind of stuff might go through. But the idea of some comprehensive immigration reform, I don't see it. Dinesh, I want to turn to the Republican Party, the future of the Republican Party. Kevin McCarthy is in an interesting position, especially with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene on one hand. You've got Liz Cheney on the other. And Senator Mitch McConnell now, in essence, coming out in support of Liz Cheney and taking the unprecedented step of uh, criticizing a House member, uh, putting McCarthy in a tough spot went with, her, with his criticisms, calling Marjorie Taylor Greene's comments a cancer on the Republican Party. What, what do you make of what's happening with Marjorie Taylor or Marjorie Taylor Greene here? Well, I'm actually going to have Marjorie on my podcast tomorrow to hit back against this stuff. And the reason I, I want her on is because, you know, look, she strikes me as an ordinary American woman who's been successful and gotten herself to Congress. And look, she has no more extreme views on the right than all kinds of people on the left. Look at Maxine Waters. Look at people all over the place in the Democratic Party. They say crazy stuff and they're not held accountable. But no one goes to Chuck Schumer and, and, and Pelosi and goes, repudiate this person, repudiate that person. It's only on the Republican side that we have this kind of mania for repudiating people and somehow does as if to say the Republican Party is some pure type of gin that has to be kept uncontaminated by any kind of baser element. Yeah, and I remember when uh, Ilan Omar had her comments, uh, the anti-Israel comments, the dual loyalty comments. I mean, all, de all Democrats could muster was some sort of House resolution watered down about, you know, all, so all sorts of Islamophobia stuff as well. I mean, it was just a hodgepodge of nonsense. 
Exactly. So this is where the media comes in. They don't hound the Democrats, but they hound the Republicans. What do you think about Marjorie Taylor's view on space lasers that she talked about 10 years ago? What do you think she's, you know, and so what happens is a guy like McConnell and a guy like McCarthy, he'll, well, I've got to weigh in on this. No, you actually don't. You should, the answer is ask Marjorie. Uh, and uh, we're going to see what she does in Congress. She's a new member. So this idea of all ganging up on her, I mean, I just find it offensive. And so I'm going to give her a podium on the podcast to say her piece and hit back at some of these guys, because I think uh, I, I think it's this is this is a piling on that I'm not really very happy with. As we wrap up here, Dinesh, uh, where's the backbone of the Republican Party today from a traditional standpoint? I mean, you've got I, I mean, you, you've seen that like a, you have a divergent Republican Party here and they've got to figure this thing out. Yeah, the Republican Party needs to realize that, uh, look, it needs the Trump MAGA Republicans. Uh, and just as the Trumpsters need the Republican Party. I mean, in my view, you actually need both. And even though there are lots of temperamental and stylistic differences, Trump sort of ex uh, exacerbated that temperamental divide. Bottom line of it is that in values, the two camps are very close. They both believe in the same type of foreign policy. They by and large believe in, in free markets and, and capitalism. They believe in law and order and traditional values. So there's absolutely no reason that these divisions can't be healed but they have to be healed on a fair and mutual, uh, 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 a basis of mutual respect. Dinesh D'Souza, always great to catch up with you. Tell people where they can uh, check out your podcast. It's, it's making waves across the country. It's really fun for me to do. It brings out my personality and my range of ideas. Uh, on audio, you can get it on Apple or Spotify. Those are probably the two most common platforms. And on video, it's every day up on YouTube. It's also up on the video platform Rumble, which I love. Uh, so if you want to watch it, go to Rumble or YouTube. And if you want to listen to it, Apple and Spotify are two good places to find it. Dinesh D'Souza, really a, a real, real pleasure. You uh, Rumble's perfect for you because you like to rumble with some good ideas out there. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, Dinesh D'Souza. Uh... Well, that was Dinesh D'Souza on the water cooler with David Brody. He's always incredibly thoughtful. And there with a powerful comparison to Mark Anthony's famous speech, A Lesson from History, which highlights the weakness of the Democrats' case against Donald Trump. Now, D'Souza also addressed how the Democrats have stopped construction of the border wall with Mexico, yet put up fences and barbed wire in your capital, all meant to keep American citizens away from Joe Biden's inauguration. Well, right after Actionable Intelligence, stay with us for Dr. Gina Primetime. She's got an awesome show for you. And then later tonight, you've got the crew. It's Studio 6B, always a great show there. And before you leave us, check out justthenews.com. There you can read the story of President Trump's response to Speaker Pelosi's charge of incitement and as they do with all of their stories, you can read the original document, which is entitled The Answer of President Donald John Trump, 45th President of the United States, to Article 1, Incitement of Insurrection.